It was an amazing trip to see the impact that you've had upon 70,000 people in the poorest country on the planet. And uh, if you didn't get that story, go back online at cof.tv and watch last week because we went through the whole story. We told it through video and, and through Laura and I uh, talking about it. And so I don't want you to miss that. I want you to understand what God is doing through you in that little tiny country in the very heart of Africa, Burundi. I want us to look together today as we continue in my series, History or His Story. We see that all of history is God's story. And as we look back at the lives of some of the people of the Old Testament, we're going to see that God is so sovereign that he had them live out principles for us to be able to put into play. We're going to look at the, the life of Moses in the next uh, message or two or three and, uh, that I'm going to share with you. And so I want us to see what God has to tell us through Moses. We know that anxiety and anger are at epidemic proportions here in suburban Houston. A lot of times when our counselors, they meet with people and underneath there's this seething anger that just is almost a homicidal kind of anger and, and it's a scary thing. And some of you in this room, you're feeling it even now. Now, anger can come from deep hurt. Anxiety can have even an organic cause. But there's another cause of anger and anxiety that I want us to look at today that I think when we see this in the life of Moses, it might set us free this morning. Also because it's coming in on uh, July 4th here this next Tuesday, uh, I want to talk a little bit, just a, a little bit about our nation too because some of us are, are feeling the desperation. Uh, I was reading one historian saying we've never been this divided in our country since the years leading up to the Civil War, those few years right before the Civil War and and, uh, you know, we can feel it. We, we sense it, the tremendous debt burden that we're leaving for our children. And more than that, even just the moral decay and the breakup of the family that we feel. And Exodus is a book that talks about an impossible situation. And it's a situation in which God sets his people free, brings them back to himself. And we might be able to see some things, how God prepared Moses for that, how he might want to prepare us to be part of what he does to bring this nation back to him and back from the brink. So Exodus is book two of a five-book series in the Bible, and it's, they're all telling the same story. They're telling the story of the greatness of God, how much he loves us, how he wants to set us free. You remember Moses' story. He was born the little... A uh, baby that was rescued because uh, Pharaoh had made an edict. The, the Hebrew people, maybe two million strong, they're slaves in Egypt at this time. And the Pharaoh was getting concerned about the strength of the Hebrew people as they were getting stronger and stronger. And so he made an edict that every male child born to a Hebrew woman is to be thrown into the Nile and killed. The females, they could live. The males were to be killed. Moses is born and his parents hide him and then remember his mom puts him in that little reed basket 
in the Nile that's, you know, made so that it'll float. And Pharaoh's own daughter comes down to bathe in the Nile and hears the little baby crying and she can't kill him. So she takes him in as her own and Moses is raised in Pharaoh's household. In fact, we encounter Moses in this passage today. He's 40 years old. And pull out your sermon notes with me. I put some of the the things I want to talk to you about in there, some of the scriptures. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 22, if you want to turn there in your Bible, it says this, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. The ancient writer Josephus, in his history of the Jews, called Antiquities of the Jews, he says, Moses was a beautiful man, a handsome man, so impressive that both Egyptians and Jews stared at him as he passed. He was also a brilliant general, says Josephus. According to his record, he delivered Egypt from the Ethiopian threat. So he's already been a deliverer. So he's already delivered Egypt in a sense. And and he's a confident leader. What we know about Moses, he's 40 years old. He spent 40 years according to the Bible, being instructed in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians. Now, people who study this this time of history in Egypt, they say in the educational uh, books that they've uncovered from the past in archaeology, what they're teaching to their elite, to Pharaoh's household, to the ones that are the elite ones of Egypt, is that everybody under them is basically the living dead. Only they matter the people under them especially the slaves but even the working class they have no souls you can do with them as you please and you know you wonder sometimes can an educational system really teach that but even in our country today you know if you tell most college educated young people they aborted the fetal matter they don't even get a catch in their breath They don't even think about the little living soul involved in that. So yes, you can begin to get desensitized. And that's exactly what was being taught by the Egyptians. Moses was educated. He sat under all of that, that he was the elite, that everybody else is less than him. And then we pick up in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 11. It says this. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. So here's Moses, he can't stand injustice. It makes his blood boil. He loses it. He kills an Egyptian and you've got a picture here. It's not just like someone, you know, beating on the guy going, come on, you can do better. He's literally probably beating this Hebrew slave to death. And Moses intervenes, kills the offender. In this act of defiance against Pharaoh, Moses goes against all of his learning. All of the basic foundations, the social, political, cultural foundations of, of Egyptian culture. And he embarrasses Pharaoh. He's of his house and he sides with the Hebrews. Somewhere along the line, we see that Moses had found the God of his fathers. In fact, in Hebrews 11:24 24 and 25, it says this, by faith Moses, 
when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. He chose. He chose to turn his back on wealth, on power. It comes out in the Hebrew version of the word, he looked on the labor of his brothers. See, he, he knew he was a Hebrew, and he rejected the teaching that all of these others were less than him. And as he looked on, it says looked on, but the word there in the original language is he looked on with great compassion. He cared. He felt it. He felt with them. So Moses is unbelievably courageous. He's filled with compassion. He's mighty in word and deed. He's really an incredible human being at this point. And he's totally not usable by God. Kind of a crazy thing. Because if you looked at it from every human standpoint, we would see, of course God chose him. Look how good looking he is. Of course God chose him. Look, he's a mighty general. Of course God chose him. He, he's, he's already delivered Egypt. Now he's going to deliver Israel. Of course God chose him. But God doesn't choose from a human standpoint. He chose Moses because he loved Moses. And he wanted to give Moses a front row seat to watch him in action, not because he needed Moses. God doesn't need any of us. If you're today thinking, you know, it's really fortunate that God has me, then you're in for a, a shock with God because he doesn't need us. You can just imagine that he can snap his fingers and messengers of fire that move at the speed of light bow before him to do his bidding. Why would he need you and me? But he loves you. And he loves me. And he wants to open this up to give us a front row seat to see him in action. In the, in the mid-90s when Laura and I left to go be missionaries in Mexico City. It had been on our heart for a long time. Just like I think this was probably on Moses' heart. I think God had been building up in him that I'm going to use you. I want you to deliver your people. And and, and you could feel it, you know, building up inside of him. Who would give Moses that desire? God would. Because a human desire would be, I think I'm just going to hang out and, and be the son of Pharaoh and, and enjoy all the riches and all that, you know, the comfort of that. God had put that in our heart. And I remember as we're flying in to Mexico City, this giant city, 25 million people stuffed into the geographic size of Houston. So more than all of Texas combined in Houston. And I'm thinking, God, I know you've called us to the city. I feel it. And, and, and I know it's going to take us, you know, I know we're not going to win this city in a, in a week. It's probably going to take at least a month. And I'm so glad you got me here. You know, we can do this. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to show you. You know what? God didn't call me to Mexico City because he needed Mark Shook in Mexico City. He called me because he loved me. And he wanted to take me to a place. It ended up being a really difficult place for me. Because I thought that my Spanish was a whole lot better than it actually was. 
And, you know, so I'm talking really slowly. I went from kind of being like a respected teaching pastor at a large church to kind of being the village idiot that everybody just kind of looked sideways at, you know, who said kind of corny things that didn't make any sense. And it really took a toll on me. I started having anxiety attacks and, and I felt angry and I had all kinds of stuff going on that we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. You might have some of this. But what I began to realize over time, even though in some ways it was a dark place for me, God was there. And God was moving and teaching and working in me. And though I was kind of like what I I would say I was running on a couple, you know, like if I was an eight-cylinder car, I was running on like two cylinders. God did some amazing miracles when I was at my weakest point. And we got to see God in action in Mexico City in some tremendous ways. I think that here you have Moses and yeah, it's dumb to kill the Egyptian. Moses, his anger, his anger got the better of him. In fact, we're going to see as we look at the life of Moses that he had an anger problem. In fact, it cost him the promised land. He missed going into the promised land because of a time When he got angry and disobeyed what God told him to do. So Moses had an anger problem and it boils up here. But I I think Moses probably in trying to do God's work for him made several mistakes. The first thing is he focused on the difficulty and the need. He focused on the need. I remember telling the team as we went into Burundi. You can't focus on the need. It will overwhelm you. Keep your eyes focused on God. God's big and God's strong and God's moving and God's working and he's changing things. Don't focus on the need. And that's what we tend to do in mission a lot of times as we go in. Oh, those poor, we got to give them something or do something. And it sets up this slanted thing where there's a giver and a taker. And that's never what we want to do. We want to be a really even walking in friendship together. Walking in business together together and that's what's happened with the Batwa and as we've been able to do that with them they've seen Christ in us and started their own churches and stepped into faith with Christ on their own because they said we want what you have community of faith we want to be that too for other people and so we've seen that happen but it's so easy to get focused on the need and get tied up in that and it just swamps us also Moses relied on on himself he thought you know surely they're going to understand I'm going to kill this Egyptian and I'm going to show them that I'm the prince of Egypt but I'm on their side and they're going to rally to me, I'm sure. And then he acted impulsively. In fact, it's interesting because one of the things that we see in this little part of the Bible is the sovereignty of God. See, God always has a timing and it was way premature. God wasn't ready to rescue his people from Egypt yet. For one thing, they weren't desperate enough. They were still worshiping the gods of of Egypt. And what we'll see 40 years later when it's time, they're desperate. They're calling out to God, the God of their fathers. Moses wasn't ready. He he thought he could handle it. He thought he could do it. And as long as he's thinking that, he's not ready. And and also, the, the Bible says that God spoke to Abraham many many years before and gave him a promise he said your people will be in bondage in a foreign land for 400 years until the iniquity of the Amorites is complete 
Let me just kind of break that down for you. The Amorites are the ones that live in the promised land. They are the, they, they are the, the dominant tribe in the land of Canaan. And a lot of times we see the Old Testament and we say, I don't know who that God is in the Old Testament. He's so vengeful. He, he's so into war and, and, and he just wipes out people. No, he's still the same God, the God of compassion. He said, I'm going to give the Amorites in the land of Canaan, even though I promised it to you, I'm going to give them 400 years to come back to me. 400 years until he knows somehow, he knows when that, it, it's like built up enough so it's time to judge. That, that's one of the things I, I keep asking God. God, will you delay judgment on our country? Because I can feel it building up, building up, building up. I don't want the time of our iniquity to be complete and then judgment fall. God, please give us more time. Please let your church make an impact, make a turnaround, you know. And, and so he's waiting until with great patience, even upon the tribes that live in the promised land, to give them a chance to turn to him and away from idols and away from sacrificing their children to the idols that they worshiped. But they don't. He knows they won't. He's sovereign. But it's still going to give them time. And that's what I love about God. So when Moses kills this Egyptian, it's 40 years too soon. God is still waiting. God is still patient. God has a timing. God is always sovereign. He didn't forget that his people were there. They thought he forgot. They thought they didn't see. But he had already told Abraham, 400 years, you mark it down. 400 years, they'll be there. And then the time is complete, and I'm going to bring them into the promised land that I've promised to you, Abraham. Well, look, let's go on. Moses went out the next day, verse 13, and two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matters become known when Pharaoh heard of this matter he tried to kill Moses but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well okay the very next day Moses goes out he sees two Hebrews fighting Hebrew on Hebrew crime right there and he says why would you strike your brother and the guy looks at him and says who made you a prince or a judge over us and then he goes on to say, are you going to kill me too like you did the guy yesterday? Now, I want you to remember the day before, there was only three people that knew what happened, right? Moses, the Hebrew that was getting beaten, and the dead Egyptian under the sand, and he wasn't talking, right? So what had happened? The Hebrew had gone back and, and started saying what had happened. And Moses thought they would rally to him. Instead, they derided him. They ridiculed him. Prince of Egypt, we don't accept you. We, who made you the prince over us? Have you ever tried to help somebody that wasn't grateful? How does that make you feel? I remember one of the first weeks that we had gotten into Mexico City and they took us before some of the, the Christian leaders of the city and there, there was like four or five of them there in a meeting and they said, here's a few of our new missionaries. We want you to meet them. And one guy's like just shaking his head and going like, when are they going to stop sending these gringos down here? And I was like, so offended, you know? Like, do you know what I gave up to get down here? The thing is, of course they're not 
grateful. I mean, of course they're not going to feel that because for years we've been coming down and messing things up, you know. So that's the thing we have to realize. And, and, and God is, is trying to work on me. So that's the beginning of it. Just like he begins to work on Moses. Moses suddenly realizes they're not rallying to me. This didn't work. In fact, it's known out there and Pharaoh has spies everywhere. He knows Pharaoh's going to know and Pharaoh does find out. Pharaoh comes after him and Moses gets anxious. So we've seen Moses angry and now we see Moses anxious. Let's pull up a minute and just examine this because I think this is going to give us some real insight that could really change our lives. Pastor Matt Chandler up in Dallas, he talks about source idols. He said, he says, in our world, we have a lot of little idols. For some of us, football is an idol. For some of us, food is an idol. For some of us, money is an idol. But he said there are only four source idols. You might want to write these down in your notes somewhere. Four source idols. Comfort, that's the first one, the comfort idol. Control, the control idol. Power, the power idol. And approval, the approval idol. These are the idols that everything else comes from. Everything else springs forth from these. These are the idols that are deep down in our gut. And he said he did a survey. Chandler says he did a survey at his large church in suburban Dallas. And, and he, said if, he said, if I was a betting man, I would have bet that comfort was going to be the number one idol of a suburban church in America. He said... For one thing, we live in the suburbs and everything is, you know, you don't even have to get out of your car. You got drive-through pizza, drive-through cleaners, drive-through everywhere, you know. And, and he said not only that, but he said his church, about 12,000 attend. And he said most of those, about 9,000 of those that are there each week, he said they're there if everything aligns perfectly. If there's no baseball or soccer or, or if the Cowboys don't kick off at noon, you know. And so it feels like it's about comfort. About 3,000 of them, he said, are pretty dedicated and stepped into really serving. And they make church work. The others are depending on that 3,000 to make it work. So he said, I'm pretty sure it's going to be comfort. He said, if I was a betting man, I would have been all in on the idol of comfort. He said, whoa, I would have lost my shirt. When he did the survey, you know what? Comfort was number three. You know what the top two idols, you know what the number one was? Control. Control. Number two was power. Control was number one. And he said it changed the way that, that he began to, to understand even himself and his church. I believe what applies to suburban Dallas applies right here in Houston. You see, the truth is you live life in one of two ways. You either trust God or you're trying to be him there's really no other ground there's no middle ground let me just give you an example somebody you might somebody might say I believe in Jesus I believe in God I, I just don't believe everything I, I for example I don't agree with what he says about sex for example well then what have we done we've set ourselves up as smarter than God we've set ourselves up as saying God, I'm going to pick and choose. I'm going to be God. I believe that I'm a better God than you are. We've ascended the throne. We said, I'll take what I want. I'll reject what I don't, pretending that we're God. And either 
Every one of us in this room either trusts God or is trying to be God. And when we talk about control, we're talking about trying to do God's work ourselves. And your greatest nightmare if control is your idol is uncertainty and the people around you will probably feel condemned and judged because you're trying to make them what they should be. And some of you are going, well, what's wrong with that? Because you're not God and you can't do it. You're trying to put your thumb down on them. You're trying to make them what they should be. And that is a God thing. Only he can do it. And it comes from the inside out, not from the outside in. Now, I'm not talking about having some boundaries and having some discipline like with your kids and family. I'm talking about control here. That's God's work. You have to control and manage everything in your world. And people who struggle with control and power are going to wrestle with one of two things. Anxiety or anger. It's going to come out in one of two ways. There's not another place to go. Because see the truth is you can't control things. Because you are not God. And so you're going to try to control and it just keeps slipping out. As it slips out what happens? You begin to realize if you're really, really smart, you realize, I can't control this. And it starts to freak you out. And you get anxious. And, and if you don't go that way, you're going to go another way. You're going to get angry. I, I, I can't control it. And, and, and the more you try to, to, to have power, and you, you have to realize you're powerless. And then you try to flex more power. And you get paralyzed with anxiety. Or you get extremely angry. You know what's going on behind the beautiful homes, the facade of all the beautiful homes in our, in our part of the world? You ask the police officers. I was looking on a, an app for real estate not long ago. And, and it was showing where all the crimes are and what they were in our part of the world right here. You know what's overwhelming? Not like murder. You know what's overwhelming? Domestic violence. You see it all over. Doesn't matter whether you live in Fairfield or Bridgeland or where you live. It's like dotted all over. Domestic violence. What is that? That's what I'm talking about. That's a slippage of control until things begin to escalate. Well, if she would just do what I... Where does the Bible say that? See, the Bible says lay down your life for your wife. Man. We give to them and we walk with them and we love on them and but there's this thing it's like I need to control I need to control my kids how many of you if you have kids you should have already learned you don't have any control right I mean that's what God's gift is the little lack of control right and, and you begin to realize that but as I began to see that I saw we have this seething anger that's epidemic here in suburban Houston marijuana use is out of control, especially among our kids in the Cypher School District, Waller School District. Why? Because it takes the edge off the anxiety, the lack of control. You know, you just kind of mellow out, right? Xanax abuse is epidemic out here. It's the same thing. That seething rage. I want to give you a truth this morning. And Jesus said the truth 
will set you free. So it's not always easy to hear, but I want you to hear it. I want you to be set free. Are you ready for it? Lean in. You are not God. Shocker. You are not God. You're not God. And as terrifying as that might feel for you, if you could really take that in and just breathe with it, it's going to free some of you up. You can't fix this. You can't fix them. You can't make them. You can't do this. You're not God. And God never intended for you to be God. Moses is 40 years old. What happens to a lot of guys when they're 40? They realize they're not God, right? And we have our midlife crisis. Hairline starts to recede. It's so, it's tragic. You know, and, and, and we got passed over for the promotion. And now what's going to happen? And we're not God. What? See, Moses is not some figure out of ancient legend. He's a normal human male who wound up as a prince of Egypt and now he's rejected and overlooked. He's having a midlife crisis. He goes out to the wilderness. He ends up by a well. Let's read on just real quickly what happens. Now the priest of Midian, verse 16, had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then some shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. Moses is like I mean, he's still against injustice. And I just think he probably looked a little bit like The Rock, you know, like, like Dwayne Johnson. He's like, I mean, it's just one guy, and there's all these shepherds, and he stands up and like, you know. And then not only that, he waters their flock. When they, the ladies came back to Reuel, their father, he said, why have you come back so soon? He knew they always got, you know, pushed away from the well. And they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds and what is more he even drew the waters for us and watered the flock and he said to his daughters where is he then why is it that you have left the man behind to invite him to have something to eat what he's basically saying is he even watered the flock and you left him there he's a keeper what's the deal get him get him home one of you one of you is going to marry that guy right 21, Moses was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah, which means twitterer. She was way ahead of her time, to Moses. Then she gave birth to a son, and he named him Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. I want to draw your attention upon the fact that Moses tries to be God, and where does he end up? He ends up in the wilderness. But I want you to see something about the wilderness. The wilderness is the place where people meet their God. Jacob, he he saw that ladder to heaven in the wilderness. Elijah, here's the still small voice of God in the wilderness. John the Baptist preaches repentance in the wilderness. Jesus wins victory over the devil in the wilderness. Hosea, the prophet finds that God is not just like the boss, but he says, I wanna, I'm your maker and your husband. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to be a father. 
a husband to you. And Saul of Tarsus, he wrestles with the Old Testament scriptures in the wilderness and he becomes Paul the great apostle who writes the New Testament out of that. But you see, the wilderness is this place where there's this shift from God as out there and boss to God as real. He's father. I'm his little son. I'm his little daughter. And he cares about me. But that's, that's a pretty massive problem for American Christians. Because we view the, the desert, the wilderness, as any difficulty and the, that must be fixed or repaired. And God's saying, this dark time right now, this is my time with you. Mark, I understand that you're suffering anxious in Mexico City. I see you having breakdown. And I'm here and I want to meet you here. And I want to show you my power here. And I want to show you that I love you. I didn't call you because of your ability. I called you just because I love you. And it changes everything. You're not God. You see, I couldn't pastor this church if I still thought that I had to do God's work. I get a front row seat to see God in action in your lives, to see God in action in mission around the world. I get a front row seat to watch God work in your impossible situation. But if I had to fix your impossible situation, I would have a breakdown because you're really screwed up. But God is God and he can do it. He's big. Here's my question I want you to consider as we close. Where in your life are you trying to be God? You say, well, Mark, how can I know that? Where are you anxious? Where are you angry? It's going gonna, it's gonna, to, you're going to find it right there. That's where you're trying to be God. What makes you the most anxious? What makes you the most angry? Some of you might feel like you're in the wilderness. I feel so dry. I, I feel it's such a dark it's like the dark night of the soul right now. I want you just to breathe. You'll find God there. He's there. The wilderness is where you come to know him deeply. What we're going to see with Moses in a few years, 40 years, doesn't seem like a few to him. He's on the backside of the desert. But 40 years later, the bush, remember, begins to burn. Ian Thomas wrote a book that says any old bush will do. It was just an old thorn bush. It was an ugly old bush. We try to make it something beautiful, but it was an ugly old bush, but it blazed up with the power of God, and it never stopped as Moses is watching. Why is this going and it never burns up? What God's trying to say is, I'll use you, Moses. And he said, Moses, I'm sending you now to be the deliverer. And you know what Moses says? Who am I? That you should send me. And God's going, now you're ready. Because before he was going like, yeah, of course. It's me. Now you're ready. Some of us have been trying to fix our nation. We've been trying to do everything. You know, we've got to get all the right people. And do all the right, that. Politicians are not going to do it. You haven't figured that out by now. In World War II. I read a little book about World War II and it was not focused on what was going on out there and all the big historical things. It was focused on a little Welsh coal miner by the name of Rhys Howells and he in Wales he gathered a group around him and it became larger and larger. They began to pray for one specific thing. They began to pray that 
Hitler would have a spirit of delusion. That he would begin to lose it, basically. And what's crazy is if you look at all the histories of World War II, Hitler's on his blitzkrieg across Europe. His, his decisions have been impeccable, amazing. He's just flying across. He's taking over the world. And all of a sudden, there comes a point where it seems like the wheels fall off. And he starts making crazy decisions. And he starts doing all this crazy stuff. You know, I think we're going to find out when we get to heaven that as much as God used the, all of the allied powers, okay, I get that, and, and he did, and I'm not, not belittling that at all. There was a little Welsh coal miner that affected the course of history. Sometimes God is driving us to our knees. Our nation, the desperation, can drive you to your knees. That's a really good place to be, right? On your knees. In fact, that's the only place on this July 4th that's going to impact this lost nation of ours. Why don't you close your eyes? Where are you trying to be God? God pinpointed that. Maybe you just want to confess to him and say, I agree with you. That's what confession means. Agree with God. Doesn't mean that you do some penance or something trying to berate yourself. You just agree with God it's sin. I agree with you, God. Maybe, maybe you're in the wilderness right now. You don't understand anything that's going on. Can I encourage you? I know it's really dark. I know you might not can see your hand in front of your face. So you take a deep breath right now. Just breathe in. Breathe out. Say, God, I know by faith I'm not alone. Meet me here. Let him meet you here. This is where you'll see how much he loves you. This is where you'll know how much he cares. You're his little boy. You're his little girl. Let him show you that. He doesn't need you to serve him. He allows you to have a front row seat to watch him in action so you can praise him. 